Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, it's no mystery uh, that the more certain we are about things that will happen tomorrow, the more that shapes our living today. Uh, many of you even work in industries where that is the reality that you uh, make decisions today based on your best understanding of what will happen tomorrow. Uh, our vocations go in that direction. Uh, our daily living goes in that direction. Uh, my college dorm room was never more clean than the night before uh, parents' weekend. Certain uh, of their arrival the following day, pizza boxes disappeared and uh, clothes were cleaned or at least hidden. And that is the way we live. Teachers prepare students today for exams tomorrow. Uh, students aim for vocations, uh, graduate schooling, professional training, uh, and choose classes accordingly today. And what we believe about the Lord's future return, his coming day, his return at the end of history to save his people and also to bring about final justice, which was much anticipated and spoken of in the Old Testament and closer on the horizon uh, each passing day since his death, resurrection, and ascension uh, should shape how we live today. This is what Paul is teaching us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. This is really the third of three lessons from Paul about the implications of the Lord's return. Lesson one, several weeks ago, Jesus' future return shapes how we grieve today. That real hope in a physical resurrection uh, means that the Christian dead are not second-class persons uh, who will miss out but are even today active and worshipfully anticipating the Lord's return. The second lesson that Jesus' public, universal, and decisive return covered last week by Chris uh, has real hope for us today for reunions uh, both between us and Jesus and us with the church which has gone on before, and that believers alive at the time of his return uh, will be reunited with him and with the church forever. And so we're to live today in light of that reality. And this third lesson uh, may be the one which is most complicated to us. For example, we may believe and we may be happy to affirm with the creed and with the teaching of the church and the the witness of scripture that Jesus is coming back. We believe it. We're happy to say it. We're even certain that we will, that he will. And uh, we happily anticipate the resurrection of the dead. We're even happy to say that we are convinced of it. Return and resurrection, certain. But Jesus, Peter, and Paul teach us that Jesus's return could happen at any moment, uh, that his return is imminent, and yet the church has been waiting for almost 2,000 years. And the tension point is this, isn't how should we live today 
for a return that is imminent, could happen at any point in time, but yet which hasn't happened in the past 2,000 years. How do we navigate that tension? And my goal for us this morning uh, is to uh, come to a realistic and non-anxiety producing paradigm uh, for living each day in light of Jesus's return, whether he returns tomorrow, uh, whether he returns just before Super Bowl kickoff, which if the Browns were playing would, you know, feel like a real possibility and perhaps justice, right? That, you know, they finally make it and then just before kickoff, the trumpet sounds and it would be better. It would be better. I don't know where I am in my notes. Um, realistic, but also non-anxious. Because there is a, a vein of Christian teaching, and, and maybe you've encountered it, and maybe you've encountered it in, in, in Christian entertainment, so to speak, uh, and we are catechized by what entertains us, that presents the suddenness of the Lord's return in highly stressful ways. I, I could introduce you to uh, a youth group companion from my youth group era uh, who was deeply concerned uh, by a movie uh, depicting Jesus's return uh, such that this cataclysmic event uh, caused airplanes to fall out of the sky, you know, planes piloted by Christians as the Christians were uh, to return to the Lord and, and just very stressed out uh, by the whole event, very anxiety producing. And it's interesting to me that Paul in 1 Thessalonians repeatedly presents the Lord's return not as a cause for anxiety for Christians, but as the end of anxiety for Christians. And so uh, I would like us to have a view which is realistic with regard to his return. How do we go about our daily responsibilities, uh, believing that Jesus could return uh, immediately, uh, but aware that he has not returned in the past 2,000 years? That's non-anxious. How do we live in light of that? And Paul can't say it more plainly that, is, that this is to encourage us. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are in doing. Encourage and build up. That for the church, the matter of the king's return is not a matter for anxiety, but is a matter for encouragement. So what could a paradigm look like uh, that is realistic and non-anxious based on these verses? Well, I think it would be a paradigm that was confident, that was courageous, and, and that was free in its living. And so let's look at that together. One of the more humorous plot lines to trace through Scripture is how often people try to put God or his messenger on record uh, about his return. And uh, I'm not talking about the slow learners in the Bible, but often the heroes of the faith are the ones who try to put God on the record about when exactly this future day of the Lord will be. I mean, few in the Bible are more respected than Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel of the lion's den, he spoke hard truths to pagan kings. Uh, he had faithful integrity in the face uh, of potential martyrdom. And then in chapter 12 of the book that has his name, he receives a vision about the end of history, 
the resurrection of the dead to everlasting life or everlasting contempt, uh, the salvation of all of God's people. And then Daniel asks, Oh my Lord, when shall be the outcome of these things? And the messenger says to Daniel, Go your way. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. So uh, as great a figure in the Old Testament as Daniel asks the question, wants to put God on the record about the date of the return, and God says essentially to Daniel, don't worry about it. Live your life. But the apostles, not to be outdone, hear Jesus teach, for instance, in Matthew 24, a, a very long lesson about the coming end. They hear Jesus say, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So that they hear him teach us. And then, uh, having encountered and been gathered by resurrected Jesus before his ascension to Jerusalem, they try to pin him down. In Acts 1 and verse 6, they'd come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So faithful people in Scripture keep asking God to, to say date certain when uh, this future day of the Lord is going to be. God keeps saying, uh, I'm not telling, uh, but that has not actually kept the church for the past 2,000 years from guessing. Uh, so my, my first word of encouragement to you, uh, if in your future days you come across a teacher who tells you exactly which day on the calendar will be the day of the Lord's return and, and invites you to make life decisions uh, with respect to that information, don't do it. He doesn't know. She doesn't know. Jesus didn't tell. God didn't tell. What he does tell us repeatedly is that the day will come. That the return of the Son of Man is certain. That resurrection is certain. Judgment on sin is real. And that we have all of the information right now that we already need to live accordingly. Uh, this is in the reading for this morning, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul says to the Thessalonians, having been in the previous verses, talking about the future resurrection, the future reunion, the return of the Lord. He's like, you already know all that you need to know. You, you, you don't need me to write you anymore. You ourselves are already aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And thief language is how Jesus described his return. In Matthew 24, same chapter where he does not give the date of his return, he says this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not respect, do not expect. So Paul applies Jesus's wisdom that the return will be sudden, that it can't be calendarized, uh, that we need to be ready for it. Uh, he applies this wisdom to the Thessalonians' world in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, peace and security it might be in quotes or in italics in your, in your uh, New Testament that you look at. Uh, and probably we're to understand this as a slogan of the Roman government. As, uh, the, as our government has slogans, you know, you look at a coin that says on the coin, e pluribus unum, uh, out of many one. Uh, so peace and security was a slogan of the Roman government, that, that where they went with their legions and pacified areas, and then uh, through their massive engineering wisdom brought roads, uh, that they brought both physical security and economic security to the regions that they went to. And Paul uh, would have known that this was particularly apt for the Thessalonians because Thessalonica as a city had a reputation for being more dangerous. Uh, for being more dangerous, particularly before the Romans showed up. The historians report uh, that uh, a, a Roman philosopher was banished to Thessalonica, uh, and he complained about how dangerous it was. And so now for the Thessalonians in the middle of the first century to be in a time of prosperity, to have the reputation of their city changed from being dangerous to safe, this slogan was important to them. It's what they were about. Uh, their economy was getting better. It was becoming a safer city. And Paul essentially says that, that while people are going about their lives, while the, the market is going up, while housing values are increasing, while more jobs are being created, while daily life is happening, the Lord will return. And the return of the Lord will bring about an inescapable conclusion to human history for everyone. He describes it as labor pains. Now, this is not my first sermon. I know there's a risk here as a dad to describe pain only observed. But Paul's metaphor is brilliant. Because whether during a, a November ice storm in South Dakota, or after a Mexican meal in downtown Naperville, or on a sunny May afternoon, I observed that once labor pains start, they're not stoppable. It leads to an inescapable outcome. And it's the inescapability that Paul focuses on. And, and I can imagine the first hearers of this letter, as the letter shows up in Thessalonica and is read in the church, and the myriad of hearers across 2,000 years since then, and perhaps us hearing of the inescapability of the end and concluding, I hear you, but just wait for a moment. I don't think so. I mean, isn't this a little bit over the top, really? I mean, we live in a culture that loves comebacks, second chances, Math test do-overs, which is the only way I got through any level of math, was to go to the teacher and ask for a retest possibility. Actually, the way that I graduated from college was by delaying math until my last semester of college and taking it when I was the same age as the graduate student who was teaching the class because I took a, a level of math that you didn't even need to be a full professor to teach. And then after she would teach all the freshmen about the math, I, I would go up and I would say, hey, just break it down for all of us 22-year-olds in the room. And I'd take advantage of the do-over, of the second chance. 
Paul says that we should not expect that. That, that, that in the middle of life, at a moment where everything seems to be going just as it did the day before, and perhaps better, the Lord will return. We should not expect a do-over, but here's the thing. This should not in any way make Christians anxious. This is the next thing that he says in verse 4. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, darkness can describe ignorance. Uh, it can describe not knowing something. I, I should update all of you who weren't at the men's conference over the weekend that the men of NPC uh, have picked the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. But we're actually in darkness about that. We're, we're, actually, uh, we're actually ignorant of the outcome of the Super Bowl. But the helpful connection that others make to darkness is that in the Bible, it not only describes ignorance about the future, it also describes the life of the unconverted. And that's the connection that I think we're to make. So just a couple of examples of which there would be more. John 3 in verse 19, just after uh, John gives his famous for God so loved the world that he sent his only son verse, John 3, 16. He comes to verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Darkness not as ignorance, but darkness as rebellion. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. So that I think that the point that Paul is making here to encourage the Thessalonians is that as they anticipate this certain but impossible to put on a calendar date of the Lord's return, that, that is, it is not so much that they are in ignorance about the date as much as they are living in the light of the gospel, that they've been converted, that they're saved, that they're safe, that they have been born again, that they are in that moment of time forgiven. They are from that moment of time, from the time of their conversion forward accepted, uh, that they have begun from the moment of their conversion forward, living the forever life of the Christian uh, that would give them and would give the church across the years and down to today confidence that, that whenever the Lord returns, we're safe. We're safe because we're already safe. We're safe because he has already achieved what needs to be achieved for us to be safe on that day when he returns so that we can be confident whether he comes this afternoon or in another 2,000 years. And because we're confident, we can secondly live courageously. That confidence of Christ's return should cause Christians to live, I think, distinctively courageous lives in each generation. Now remember, this Thessalonian, uh, Thessalonian church was small, and they were experiencing opposition. Chris reminded us, us of this last week. We see it in the beginning verses of the letter. Likely they were facing physical persecution from their uh, fellow townspeople. Likely they were facing economic persecution uh, from their townspeople. Uh, it seems to be the case in Thessalonica that as people uh, became Christians, this disrupted their 
uh, marketplace relationships because they wouldn't engage in the paganism that was associated with marketplace work through the trade guilds. And so they were kind of losing their economic opportunities. So while Thessalonica was going through a time of peace and security and economic upturn, Christians were not in on that. And, and so Paul encourages them to be courageous. And he uses four metaphors to encourage the church and to distinguish believers from unbelievers. He says the Christians are children of the light, children of the day, awake, sober. Unbelievers are of the night, of the dark, going through life as asleep or as inebriated. Now, sleeping people are not engaged with what is happening. And drunk people can't respond to what is happening. Paul says, and listen for the contrast, that Christians are not of that way. He says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We, and so now he's saying, we the apostles and you the church, so Christians together, in other words, all Christians. All Christians are not of the night or of the darkness, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I think that this is a point where we need to let God through Scripture rewrite the script that we often hear from the world around us. Often the script that we hear from the world around us is that it is the Christians who are out of touch. Uh, It it is the Christians who don't really know what is going on. It is, in in the current popular phrase, Christians who are on the wrong side of history uh, with respect to what we believe, with respect to the specifics of the confessions of our faith, that Jesus is the alone Savior, which all must meet with regard to the particulars of Christian living, where it contradicts worldly living, that, that Christ, it's the Christians who are out of touch. Paul actually reverses that. He says that, that Christians are of the day, that, that Christians are awake, that, that it's actually the world that's out of touch with what is really going on. And, and he is making a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. And he is saying that that the non-Christians, as they go about their lives, uh, are are unawake, are not awake to the reality that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will return again. That, That they are, if you will, going through life unaware of or not responding to the news that the most decisive event in human history has already happened. That that, that the key pivotal moment point for humanity is not the thing that you're going to read tomorrow when you log into however you read your news. It's not whatever happens with the Chinese balloon. It's not whatever happens with the economy. It's not whatever happens with the next presidential election that the key decisive point in human history has already happened in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of the Lord Jesus. And as people bop through life and say that Christians are out of touch with what's going on, Paul says, well, those people are just sleepwalking. Now, I'm not a, a fan of the zombie genre of entertainment. 
But it did cross my mind that that, that, that the illustration fits a little bit of, of going through life and sleepwalking. The living dead. Scripture needs to rewrite the script that we hear for our courage. Paul says that we already have enough to live courageously until Christ returns. Now, I use the word uh, courageously because Paul presents the Christian virtues of faith and love and hope as protective equipment, if you will. PPE, perhaps, in modern parlance. Breastplates and helmets protect. They're what uh, you know, Thessalonians would have understood the soldiers of their day to wear for protection, but not as offensive weapons. I mean, unless you're going to bop someone with your helmet like a nose tackle, uh, you know, you don't have any offensive weapons portrayed there, but you have defensive protective weapons, which makes sense. Paul's saying that as you go and live your life, as you wait for Jesus to return, that you have already been given what you need to live protected and defended in the world so you can be courageous. You have the, the breastplate and the helmet which you need to defend you. And so the question that I want us to think about is, where does Paul imagine that we are going to live courageously? Where exactly will faith, hope, and love protect us uh, while we await Jesus's return. How can this help us with a realistic, non-anxiety producing paradigm to live in light of Jesus' return? Well, that's where I think we really need the whole letter of Thessalonians to help us. Because Paul has already told us where we're to live. And what I want us to see big picture is he's not saying, hey, church, Jesus is coming back. I, I want you to live certain of his return. And so hunker down form a huddle, be protected. No, he doesn't do that. He expects that faith, hope, and love are going to help the church live alertly and soberly in affliction, chapter one and chapter two. That the faith, hope of salvation, and love motivate us to abound in love towards the world. This is, this is remarkable. When, when he talks about his goal for the church in chapter 3 and verse 12, and maybe you can just flip back there, where he wants the church, he's praying that the Lord may make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. That, that for all is all the world, the, the same world, which is causing problems and consternation for the Christians. Now, he's not saying don't fall in love with the, the worldly and dark things that they're doing, the things that make them sleepy and drunk, but he is saying love them in the gospel. You know, love the world around you such that you carry the gospel to them. Faith in Christ, faith in the truthfulness and goodness of God's word, chapter 4, love for our Savior and for each other, hope in forgiveness and accept us, to protect us as we abstain from sexual immorality and pursue sexual integrity despite the unrelenting messaging of the world. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Faith, hope, and love are the building blocks of Christian affection in the church. Faith, hope, and love give us courage as we aspire to live quietly, to mind our own business, to work according to the talents and opportunities it's given us. Chapter 4. Faith, Hope of salvation, love, they inform our grieving. They inform our waiting. In other words, 
uh, we're to live out these virtues. These virtues give us courage as we go about daily, daily life, which is a, another way of saying that Jesus' imminent but unpredictable return and the confidence that we have in the gospel means that we go about the tasks and opportunities of daily living with Christian confidence. Jesus is returning. He's coming back. Don't tune out. Don't drop out. Stay awake. He's coming back. He's coming back maybe on Tuesday. But, but if we could know that he was coming back on Tuesday, we'd go to work on Monday. Which means that, that living in light of Jesus returns means that every day is a great day to parent. Every day is a great day to go to work. Every day is a great day to take notes during a lecture, to go on a date, to spend time with your unbelieving neighbors for Jesus' sake. That, that a realistic, non-anxious paradigm for living in light of Jesus' return means to, to live for him every day as you go about the affairs of day-to-day -day life. Now, it might seem obvious to you, and you're like, Dave, I don't know why you're hung up on that. But I will tell you that in the 2,000 years of church history, the church has not always gotten that right. Uh, the, the, the church has, in the past 2,000 years, thought that in light of Jesus' return, we should drop out. In light of Jesus' return, we should tune out. In light of Jesus' return, we should not engage with our neighbors. We should not try to build a better world. We should not try to go to work and make our workplace a better place. That's not what Paul is saying. It's like Jesus is returning. His return is certain. Live out faith, hope, and love courageously everywhere. Everywhere. And then thirdly, he wants us to live freely. A realistic, non-anxious, and encouraging paradigm for living each day in light of Jesus' return appreciates what God's announcement towards us will be on the day when the Lord does return. Christian, this is, this is your destiny. If you are a believer on the day when Jesus returns, it is your destiny to hear God say to you, not guilty. It is your destiny to hear the words forgiven, accepted, delighted in, beloved. And here's why. This is the point that Paul makes in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Not destined for wrath. Destined to obtain salvation. How? Not through our efforts, but through Christ's efforts, especially through what Christ's death has achieved for us. This is one of Paul's explicit references in 1 Thessalonians to Christ's achievement on the cross. That Christian confidence for the future is anchored not to how well you're going to perform tomorrow, not to how well you're going to do this afternoon, but as anchored to what Christ has already done at the cross. That the cross assures us that salvation has been obtained for us by Christ, assures us that God has not destined us for wrath, 
that wrath is not our future, not because God has written off the judgment that we deserve, but because his wrath towards us has been absorbed by Christ at the cross. This is not new territory for NPC. We talk about the cross all the time. But talking about the cross all the time never makes talking about the cross redundant. And the reason why I say that is because the Thessalonians had already been informed about the cross. They already knew about the cross. Paul says, I don't need to write to you about the future things. You already know all that you need to know. You already know all the things that I'm telling you. But I'm going to tell you one more time. You're not destined for wrath. I'm going to tell you one more time that Christ has died for you. I'm going to tell you, how do you live courageously in the cultural moment that you are in? Christ has died for you. What, What would go through your mind if you walk out of here and the trumpet sounds and the Lord returns? Christ has died for you. What would go through your mind And what would go through my mind when we talk to our non-Christian friends and they would say, hey, you're just out of touch. Say, you know what? I'm not destined for wrath. Christ has died for me. And then we might also say to them, would you like to not be asleep? Would you like to wake up? Would you like to not live out of touch? Because I'd like to talk to you about a king who's died for you as well. Paul doesn't launch into a whole lesson about the cross. I think, and others think, because the Thessalonians already knew it. It was a mainstay of discipleship. The preaching of the cross was in the first decades of the first century and remains in the first decades of the 21st century, essential to the encouragement of the church. Essential to the encouragement of the church is the message of the cross. Essential to the encouragement of the church is the preaching of the message of the cross. And not just from up front, but in our groups, in our relationships, in our friendships. I wonder, I wonder how this would shape our conversation. And I think it does happen in our conversations some, but as, as we get together and as we share the uh, discouragements of our life, as we share the trials of our life. Yes, we want to listen. Yes, we want to be empathetic. Yes, we want to be supportive. But but don't not say, you know, I hear you and it's hard. Christ has died for you. You're not destined for wrath. This, this mess that you're in, that you feel is your destiny, it's not your destiny. You're destined to obtain salvation. That's your destiny. So, so we, we spend a lot of time looking down at our problems. And there's a place to look down at our problems. But when we look down at our problems, and we, we might need someone else to help us do this, we might need someone else to help us lift up our heads and say, as you look down on your problems, don't forget to look up and see the cross. That that is where your destiny is secured. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming. And so we can live confidently and courageously, and we can also live freely, encourage each other with these truths. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. 
subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.